until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they had heard this or heard that said, this man called for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come and save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake, and those things that which were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Psalm chapter 85, one verse of Scripture I want to read in your hearing. Verse number 10 simply says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And I want to preach to you for the next little while this morning on this subject. The collision at the cross. The collision at the cross. Would you put your Bibles down? Would you lift your hands right now? I need God's help this morning. God, we ask that you would, Lord Jesus, send your anointing upon your messenger, God. That you would anoint these lips of clay. God, that you would help me to lay my flesh aside this morning, God, and preach, thus saith the Lord, to the church. God, I've come against every distraction that might be in the house, both physical and demonic, God, and we loose your power and your authority, God. We ask that you would uh, speak to your church and let your word go forth and accomplish that for which you've sent it today. And we thank you in advance, and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Why don't you shake somebody's hand as you're being seated and say, I'm going to preach with the preacher this morning. It was at Calvary that two of the greatest forces that have ever existed in eternity met with awesome collision power. Don't mistake it, there were many forces that, were, that had arrayed themselves around the cross that day. There was the force of envy, which is an unbelievably powerful force because the Bible says that it was for envy that the Jews delivered him up to be crucified. There was the force of fear that was present at Calvary that day. The Bible says it was for fear of the Jews that Pilate delivered him up to be crucified. The force of pride was there. The force of curiosity was there because people gathered around out of curiosity to see what was taking place. There was the force of hatred that was gathered there at Calvary that day because they hated him for what he preached. And all of them arrayed themselves around the foot of the cross to see this unfolding drama 
of mighty redemption as God Himself, which was robed in flesh, became the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. But the two forces that were the greatest among them came on a collision course to Calvary that day as well. They collided with such a force that the Bible says that the earth shook and the, the rocks quaked. And the force of the impact of this collision as God's hatred for sin and God's love for humanity collided for the first time ever at Calvary that day. This is the first time in all of eternity that these forces squared off and they came head to head with each other. At the Old Testament altar, they sort of shadow boxed, if you will. They sort of uh, tried to position themselves to intimidate one another. They skirted around each other. But at the Old Testament altar, they never really collided. They never really fought. There was no real remission of sin. There was no real resolution to the sin question. They were just pushed ahead and rolled back and never really dealt with. You see, God's hatred for sin allowed them down through allowed them to be pushed down through the corridors of time to be rolled over for yet another year. And God's love for humanity kept pushing the sins further and further. But it was at Calvary for the first time that they said, we will not skirt around the issue any longer. And there was no more deferral of sins as the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the offering in order to push sin forward for another year. But this day... This moment in time was a point of change in the way that God dealt with the sin of humanity. The cross is, a, is central to everything when we talk about the sins of humanity. Take nothing away from His resurrection and take nothing away from the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, and taking nothing away for this, from this service here this morning, but Calvary was the central focal point to everything that we believe and everything that we have been taught over the years. For it was at Calvary that the sin question was dealt with once and for all. And it was at Calvary that it was finalized. It was at Calvary that where the blood was applied to my life and to your life, it was at Calvary that Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. And this is just a, a simple two-point message. But I really feel in the Holy Ghost that God wants to speak to someone this morning. And for us to understand what really took place at Calvary that day, I would like to take a look and like to take you on a journey to look at the two forces that came together with such a collision force that it shook all of the earth. The first thing I want to bring to your attention the first force was God's hatred of sin. Don't make any mistake about it. God hates sin. God hates sin. He loves the sinner, but God hates sin. 
Proverbs 14.34 tells us, Righteousness exalt, exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That word reproach is translated in this verse of Scripture. It is a Hebrew word that simply means favor and mercy. But with a negative connotation or a negative pretext attached to the front of it, what it says is the sin negates the mercy and it negates the very nature and favor of God. Sin takes what God would what what God would be merciful and what God would be favorable towards and it negates or it erases and removes it from the equation. The only thing that was ever able to become to, to come between God and his creation was sin. When God spoke everything into existence, he spoke it with favor and with mercy. God's plan for humanity was to dwell in peace and favor. God's plan for humanity was to grow up in a paradise that he created for man. And it was to grow up uh, in a paradise, brother newcomer, that would be uh, favorable to a, and conducive to a mighty relationship with him. And the Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, that God would come down in the cool of the day and he would walk with them and he would talk with them and he would sup with them. But sin in the Garden of Eden that began in the Garden of Eden, Eden negated the mercy and the favor of God for humanity. That is the reason that we have drought and famine. That's the reason we have tornadoes and hurricanes. That's why we have death and we have disease. We have cancer. That's why the world is full of war and poverty. All of these were the result of sin because the mercy and the favor of God was removed from humanity. For the Bible says that every transgression and disobedience receives its just recompense of reward. I think that the majority of the people in this room this morning would relate with what I'm about to say to you. I think you would agree with me with what I'm about to say to you. But perhaps one of the most, uh, one of the most toughest questions, one of the toughest questions that have ever been asked in my uh, 39 years on this earth was asked uh, by someone who had a family member who they thought lived a good and a righteous life, but that family member was cursed with the dreaded disease of cancer. They were on their deathbed, and this person could not understand why God would allow this to happen to their family member. They couldn't understand because they were a good person. They never robbed anybody. They never murdered anybody. They never really done anything against anybody. And they looked at me. They looked at me with, with tears in their eyes. And they, and they looked at me and said, why? Why not the murderer and the thief? Why not the child abuser? Why would God allow this to happen to my family member? Why wouldn't God choose someone that wasn't a good person? Why wouldn't God choose someone that made many mistakes in their lives and they turned their back on you so many times. Why not them? 
Why my family member? While I could not give them the answer at that moment because I stood there dumbfounded trying to search my mind as to why God would allow it to happen. And we say things like, well, it's just life. It's just the circle of life. It's part of of what we have to deal with in this life. But no answer that I could come up with uh, would really suffice and would really give an answer to the question that they had and that they were asking me. And while I couldn't come up with an answer at that moment, I now know that God had nothing to do with it. It happened because of the human condition. It wasn't God's plan for humanity. Sickness wasn't God's plan for humanity. Sin wasn't God's plan for humanity. But it was because of the human condition. It was because of the sin factor that had entered the equation. Because the perfect nature of God, favor and mercy were negated when sin entered the picture. Because of the reproach of sin. Because of the negating of grace and mercy and the favor of God. Sickness and disease and poverty and war and all manner of trials and tribulation were able to enter into the life of humanity. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 say, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save. Neither is His ear heavy that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, and He will not hear you. It was the sin of humanity that hid His face from us. It was the iniquity of humanity that separated God from His most prized creation. But this God that I serve, And let me tell you this morning, this God that I serve has a long arm that can reach down to where you are and to where I am. David said, if I make my bed in hell, God, you, you will find me there. There is not a place that you can go that God cannot reach you. There is not a place so far from God that He cannot hear you when you cry. You may feel like you've gone so far and you've done way too much that God would never forgive you. But let me tell you this morning, God hears your cry. God is reaching for you this morning. The issue is not with God, but the issue is with humanity. God's ear is not too heavy that He can't hear. And His arm's not too short that He cannot reach down to where you are in that pit of sin this morning. And He can take your hand and He can lift you out and He can set you on a rock. He can set you in a safe place in His presence. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Know ye not the unrighteous shall... Inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. God is serious about His hatred for sin. 
So serious, in fact, that Jesus said in his word, when we offend in one point, it is as though we are guilty of the whole law. He said, when you offend in one of these areas, when you fail in one of these areas, it is as though that you have created, that you've committed this blanket of sin and you are in judgment of and guilty of the whole law. Not just part, not just this part here. Now you cannot pick and choose, but you're guilty of the whole law of God. Romans 2 and 23 tells us why sin is so grievous to God because Paul said, Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonoreth thou God. This holy, this righteous, this pure and sovereign God, the only thing that ever brings reproach on God, the only thing that brings dishonor to God is this thing that has embedded itself into the heart's and the lives of humanity, and it is called sin. And when I transgress the law of God, I bring reproach on more than just myself. I bring reproach on more than just my pastor. I bring reproach on more than just my church. But I bring reproach on God. We think that the sin is just about us. And that it only affects us. And it doesn't affect anybody. Why would anybody else care what I do? Because not only do I bring a reproach on myself. And not only do I bring a reproach on my, on my family, my children, my wife. But I bring a reproach on God when I allow sin to enter into my life. You may be here this morning. And it may be you that I'm talking talking to, you've allowed sin to enter your life, and you've allowed your, your, yourself to go places that you never wanted to go, and you find yourself farther from God than you ever wanted to be, but I got good news for you this morning. God's arm is long, and He can reach you right at the point of your sin. His arm is long, and He can reach you no matter how far you go. He can still hear you. God is sitting there calling to you, would you come? Would you come back to me? I will give you rest. Would somebody clap your hands and give God praise this morning? Brings reproach on God. 1 Corinthians 3 and 16 says, But you know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The ye that, he, that the Bible speaks of is not you and it's not me individually but it says ye which means all of us all of us the temple of God is not this building the temple of God is not the is not the new church that we're building across town and I know that God is going to meet us there just like he meets us here but we don't make no mistake about it this church this building is not the temple of God according to the Bible ye are the temple of God and the spirit of God doesn't dwell just in this building but it dwells in every one of us the Lord said that if you defile if you corrupt the very thing called the temple of the Holy Ghost, I'll just remove my favor and let that corruption destroy you and let it destroy me. This is not my body, but this is God's temple. 
It's not mine. It's on loan from God. I happen to dwell in this body, but this body does not belong to me. What I do to this body is not just my decision, but i got to make a, a, a conscious decision that, that, Lord, if I defile this body, it's not just something that's being done to Danny, but, God, I'm bringing a reproach on you because this is your temple. We think of it just as, as my life, and I, I'll do what I want to do. And I'll say what I want to say, and I'll go where I want to go. And it's just going to affect me. No, sir. No, ma'am. It doesn't just affect you. But it brings a reproach on God. And God, help us this morning to realize that we never want to bring a reproach on God. We never want to we never want to slap God. Nobody in this room, I don't think that anybody in this room if God himself was to walk in here in physical form that anybody would ever stand and open your hand and slap him in the face. But every time that we sin it's as though God is standing before us and I just slap him in the face and I bring a reproach on him and it's demeaning and it's embarrassing and it, and it hurts him. And when I sin, just like I, I, would have, I would do in physical form if I was to strike him, I'm bringing a reproach on him. It's nothing that he deserves. It's not his fault. Why should I bring a reproach on him? It's not his fault that humanity decided to allow sin to enter into into their lives. But Lord, don't ever let me bring a reproach on you. God, don't let everything, anything in my life bring a reproach on you. God, it's not about you. It's not about me, but God, I bring a reproach on you with my sin. I don't think that any of us would purposefully do something to that nature. But it brings a reproach on God. When we look at Genesis, we get just a glimpse of God's hatred for sin. The Bible tells us that when God looked at the fallen man, hear me, that it repented God that he had ever made man on the earth. Because of the sin of man, it grieved him in his heart. And that word grieve simply means to cut or to carve. It cut God's heart. When he looked at what man had become, when he looked at what man had done, man, his most prized creation, his most prized possession, and he repented that he ever created man on this earth. That tells us that God has extreme hatred for sin, anything that would cause him to look at us and just uh, wish that he had never created man, that shows that God's hatred for sin. When it looked, he looked at man and it cut his heart and he repented that he ever made man. When God looked at the sin of humanity, the Bible says that his heart was cut, he repented. He ever made us. If we understand that this morning, we can understand what Paul meant in Romans when he said, when we come before God, we will have no excuses. The Bible tells us that we'll stand before God one day. There'll be many of those as he opens the book of life and he begins to account 
everything that we have done. There'll be some Sunday school teachers who say, yeah, but God, I taught a Sunday school class. There'll be preachers, unfortunately, that look, will look at him and say, but God, I preached your word. God, I did my best to win souls for you. There'll be saints that gather before him and say, yeah, but God, you didn't know what I was facing in life. You didn't know how hard it was to live up to your expectations. God, and the Bible says that there will be no excuses when we stand before God. Because at that very moment, when he opens that book, and he looks at Danny Lytle's name, and he begins to give an account for my life, whatever is written in that book is settled. At that moment, it's too late. I can't look at him and say, well, God, I'm really sorry about that. I never, I never meant it to affect anybody like that God I never meant anybody to go astray I never meant to have the wrong attitude and he begins to give an account it's too late I can't give an excuse for anything that I've done up to that point but there is one thing that I can do while I'm still alive while I'm still breathing while I'm still on this side of heaven I can make sure that my life is right I can make sure that I don't allow sin to enter my life and bring a reproach upon God No excuses. Nothing that will be able to be said. And I don't even know that any... I, I really don't even know that anybody will ever even try to make an excuse. I believe that maybe some, of, some will just look and they'll be dumbfounded and they won't be able to speak because they know that they missed out on the greatest reward in life. There's no passing the buck. There will be no pointing a finger at someone and say, well, they made me. They treated me wrong. They did this. They did that. There will be no valid excuse that will cause us to be able to shift the responsibility and the blame from off of us. That's why sin is so scary. That's why sin is so serious. We sometimes take it haphazardly. We think, well, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. I, just, I lied to someone. I had someone the other day, uh, a salesman that I work with, and he, he talked about going into a customer, and he said, you know, I'll tell them anything they want to hear. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter uh, what I say. I, I just never really tell them the truth. I just tell them what they want to hear. And, and, and as, long as, they, as long as they buy something from, that's, that's, that's lying. That's lying. That's what it, so we sometimes take uh, just, just uh, mistelling the truth, and maybe we don't even call it a lie, but we just withhold the truth, or we just withhold the whole story, that we just take it haphazard. But sin is nothing to take haphazard. Sin is nothing to just, just push to the side and say, well, it's no big deal. But sin is the only thing that can stand between us and getting to heaven. Sin can cause us to miss the boat, can cause us to spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Paul said that sin is deceptive, and God said, Paul, you deceived me. Sin is so very deceptive. Paul went on to say in Acts, I thought within myself to do many things contrary to the name 
of Jesus. He was saying, I had things pop up in my mind, things that I want to do that I knew was contrary to the Word of God. He said, I thought I was right, and I felt good in my spirit, and I felt good in my heart. But that is one of the most dangerous places to be when we can feel good about sin and we can feel good about what we're doing and we can feel good about going places that we know that we ought not to go. That's, that's a dangerous place for us to be because that brings a reproach on God. Listen, it's one thing for someone to sin unknowingly because there are people in this world, I believe, maybe in third world countries, but they haven't heard the gospel. They don't, they don't necessarily know right from, they know right from wrong, but they don't necessarily know sin, uh, sin from righteousness. And maybe they've never, been, they've never been told, but we know right from wrong. We know what's sin and we know what's righteous. We know what it is to be separated from the world. We know what it is to come to the house of God and to, and, and to, and to shun other places in this world. We know what is right and what's wrong. But the moment that we allow that sin to feel good in our heart and when we begin to feel good about what we're doing and what we've said and how we treated somebody and how we don't have a prayer life and how we never read the Word of God because I don't have time, that is a very dangerous place for us to find ourselves in because we're bringing a reproach on God. The Bible says that he that knoweth to do good and do it not, to him it is sin. One of the most dangerous places to be. But you've got to understand that how you feel about something is not how sin is defined. Just because it doesn't seem bad to you, that doesn't mean that that sin is no great sin and that we can just do whatever we want to do. We can continue to do it because how I feel about it and how you feel about it doesn't define the fact that it is sin. Well, it doesn't bother me. Well, it doesn't convict me. My, fe my feelings do not uh, define sin. How I feel about it and how I look at it does not mean that it's not sin. And that it doesn't bring a reproach on God. 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. For, the sin, for sin is the transgression of the law. God said, thou shalt. And I, if God says, thou shalt, and I don't, it does not matter how I feel about it. If God says, don't, and I do, it doesn't matter how I feel about it or how I look at it. The Word of God, not me, but the Word of God defines what sin is. And you better be careful with sin. You better be wary of sin. Sin is not something to be played with. But you better get through the sin before, you get, before it gets through to you. Sin will take uh, take you and po possess you and it will take possession of you. It will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will charge you a price that is a whole lot more than you thought you would ever have to pay. I'm telling someone in, under the sound of my voice this morning, walk away from it. Leave it. Walk away from it. If you know it's sin, get away from it. If you know that you're doing wrong, make it right right today. If you know that you're bringing reproach on God, make it right with God today because you don't have tomorrow. You don't have the rest of the day, but it's a reproach upon God and should He call us home. 
should he call us home? At that moment, it's too late. The moment, Brother Brandon, that we take our last breath, it's too late. The moment that that certain person that we wanted to tell about God, but we never did, and they, they take their last breath, or they're in a car accident, at that moment, it's too late. Walk away from it today. Walk away from it. Make it up in your mind that I'm going to change today. Make up in your mind that I'm going to get right with God today. Because hear me, we are not promised tomorrow. We could leave this place on the way to lunch today and a car can run a stop sign or a, or, or a stoplight and God forbid that someone can be snuffed out of this world. And that's how quick that eternity comes upon us. And if we are not ready, hear me, if we are not full of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues and we have not been buried in the wonderful and lovely name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins, then we have no chance to make it. Got to be ready when God comes. Some say, I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. Well, I'm going to mess with your theology. Neither do I. I don't either. I don't, I don't think that anybody will go to hell because God sent them there. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin cannot go unpaid. So God's intense hatred for sin came to Calvary that day demanding payment. It was a force that said, I will not put it off any longer. I won't push him forward any longer. We can no longer roll this ahead for another year. The blood of goats and rams will no longer suffice as payment for your sins. But I demand payment of blood today. The second most powerful force that has ever existed is God's intense hatred of sin. And it came to Calvary that day, that day demanding satisfaction. But from somewhere on the other side of the cross came the only force in eternity that is greater than God's hatred for sin. And that was God's love for the souls of humanity. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. Not a casual thing. I cannot begin to utter in words. I cannot come up with words that you would or I would possibly understand the intensity of the feeling and the depth of the commitment that is encompassed in two little letters that make up the word so. God so loved the world. David said in Psalms 8 and 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The word mindful in that scripture means to be continually on someone's mind. To be continually involved in their thought process. When I walk out of this building, sad to say, and when I forget 
about the touch of God. When I go minutes or I go hours and God forbid sometimes even days without God ever crossing my mind or the thought of His goodness crossing my mind, God never forgets me. I'm never off His mind with all the things that God could be thinking about, with all the things that could be consuming His thought process. Even when I'm thinking, when I'm not thinking about Him, He is always thinking of me. I'm always on the mind of God. You may be here this morning and you may feel like God's nowhere near you. You may think that God never thinks of you. You may be, you may be tired of what you're going through. You may be tired of the tra- test and trial and say, well, God doesn't care about me. God's not thinking of me. But let me tell you this morning, His Word says that we are always on His mind. He always always knows right where you're at. He always knows right where you, what you're going through. So don't ever let the enemy come against you and say God's not thinking about you and God's not concerned about you. God so loved you that he gave his only son to be a propitiation for our sins. He so loved you. He so loved the world. All that we have felt in this service this morning, everything that we have felt when this praise team so capably led us and ushered us into the presence of God, and all of the goodness that the Lord, of the Lord that we have felt and that we feel, and all of the blessings and the benefits of God that we are experiencing in our lives and we have experienced, please understand None of it, none of it is a product of our goodness. None of it is a product of how good we have been. Nothing is a product of how faithful we have been. None of it is a product of our standards of holiness. And I thank God for our standards of holiness and our separation from the world. But none of it has to do with us at all, but it all has to do with the mercy and the unmerited favor of God. There is nothing that we could ever do to deserve His favor. There's nothing that we could ever do to deserve His mercy, but God so loved us. John said it like this, Oh, what manner of love hath the Father bestowed upon us that that we would even be called the sons of God. It's the unmerited favor, the unerasable love of an almighty God that he pours out his mercy and his favor and his blessings and his goodness upon us. John 1.1, and I paraphrase, but it says, he who was God in the beginning, then it goes on to say in 1 and 14, he left glory and he robed himself in flesh. Philippians says it like this, He took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I don't understand it this morning. I I, I stand in this pulpit and I tell you, I don't understand it. My mind cannot grasp it, but somehow he ungodded himself 
if you will, and he robed himself in humanity. He went through the humiliation of the trial and the beatings. He endured the horrible death of the cross, all on the hope that someday, somehow, I might love him back. He had nothing to gain but my love. But just on that, on that hope and on that thought, he came, he left his throne in glory. He took off his kingly robe, his kingly attire, and he stepped onto this, this God-forsaken earth, if you will, and he robed himself in flesh. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do it. Some would say, why would he even do that? Some don't even believe that he did do it. But I'm telling you that he robed himself in flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he gave his life for us, all in the hope that we would love him back as much as he loves us. (laughs) On the hope that someone might love him back. That is why that when I look at the word of God, it says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is a, a God that has declared the end from the beginning. Things, he declared things that are not as though they were. There is no thought withholding from him. When he stepped out into the emptiness of nothing and began his creative process of separating the light from the darkness, he could look forward in time and I believe that he could see Calvary. He knew what we were going to do when he created us. He knew that we were going to bring reproach on his name. He knew that we were going to bring shame to heaven. He knew that we were going to have to, he was going to have to descend and robe himself in flesh. He knew the sacrifice he was going to have to make. He knew how painful it was going to be. He knew how humiliating it was going to be. He knew that the cost would be uh, what the cost would be if he continued uh, on with his creation. But because of his love for humanity and his love for our soul, he went on and said, "Despite of all that, I will go ahead and create it, knowing what it's going to cost me." Knowing what I'm going to have to go through. Knowing the ridicule. Knowing that that my own people are going to forsake me. And knowing that I'm going to have to be nailed to a cross. And I'm going to have to kill this earthly body. But yet he said, I will go ahead because I so love the world. He said, I'm going to go ahead because in 2016 in Frankfort, Indiana, at a church called Christian Life Church, there are going to be some people that are are that are hurting. There are going to be some people that have made mistakes and they have no no course of action. There's nothing that they can do. But I love them that much that I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to lay down my life willingly. No man's going to take it, but I'm going to give it. God so loved you and He so loved me that He was willing to give His life. We're talking about God's love for humanity. And I'm closing this morning. God's love for humanity. And when you kind of begin to get a handle on these two forces that I've talked to you about this morning, God's intense hatred for sin and God's profound love for humanity, 
You better understand that the nature of Christ, what, you better understand the nature of Christ as he walked into this world. How that one moment he could walk into the temple that had been polluted and corrupted by the money changers and the merchants. And with a whip and with lightning in his eyes and thunder that rolled out of his mouth as he drove them out of the temple. And yet, almost in the next instance, we read where he's kneeling by in the dirt by a woman called in the very act of adultery. And he's saying, neither do I condemn you. You need to understand that how in one moment of time, he could issue a strong rebuke to Peter when he said, if you live by the sword, Peter, then you'll die by the sword. And then in the next moment, Brother Brandon, he picks up lovingly and tenderly the severed ear of one of his accusers. He puts it on his head and he heals him completely. And then he's on his way to be tried, convicted, and put to death. And as the day grew closer, his course became more apparent. Both of these forces were surging in the spirit of Jesus, torn. No wonder he prayed, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. He was saying, if there was any other way, God, but if there is no other way, if we can't reconcile it, if the only way we can reconcile Adam and Eve's rebellion in Eden is by Calvary, nevertheless, not my will, God, but your will be done. You've got to understand, this was the flesh side of Jesus that did not want to go to the cross. He knew how horrible it was going to be. He knew how painful it was going to be. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, God. That's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take, God. That that's what you're going to require of me. God, if that's what you're calling me to. Nevertheless, not my will. You have to understand that even if it, if it is even possible, how intensely and repugnant, horrific, horrific sin was and is to God. How much he hates sin. How much shame that he felt when he looked at fallen man that he even considered that it would have been appropriate to repent for ever creating man. Yet in spite of all that, he came. In spite of all that, he loved you. He loved me. If you are here today and you are rapture ready, if you are here today and by the sovereign mercy of God, you have repented of your sins and you've been baptized in Jesus' name, you've been filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, and if God should come with one sweep of His hand and blot out and start the wheel of eternity rolling in your life this morning, before the sun goes down on this day, please understand that if you make it, 
It has nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with you. But it was the sovereign act of a gracious God that spoke righteousness into your life. You were not righteous, but you were made the righteousness of God. Would you stand with me? You have to understand what a hideous place Calvary was. Somehow in our minds we could travel back in time. We could see Christ as he struggles up the hill of Calvary. The crown of thorns pressed into his brow. And stripes beaten on his back. Listen, until the internal organs of Jesus were visible through the shredded muscle tissue of his body. Because it was... The Bible says, give him 40 stripes, save one. 39 stripes of a cat of nine tails. Why? Someone asked. And I had to ask the question. And Pastor so, so perfectly uh, described it to me. He said, because they knew that all a man could stand and live were 39 stripes, that 40 would kill a man. They took him to the very point of death when they beat him. And now his internal organs are visible through his flesh. And there they lay him down upon that cross where he is nailed through his hands, through his feet. That Calvary Jesus is suspended somewhere between heaven and earth. And the Bible says that his visage was marred more than any other man, meaning that he was unrecognizable at Calvary because of the beatings that he took. They would have even recognized him. We all sing about the blood, and I'm thankful. Sing songs about the blood, and I'm thankful for every one of them. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus. But let me tell you something. As God robed himself in flesh, And writhed on a cross in pain that day as his muscles begin to fail him. It was a death of suffocation because all the weight, they would hang on that cross and it would constrict the rib cage. And it would not allow the, the, the lungs to inflate with air so that he would have to push himself up to get one more breath before he sagged down again. He would die of suffocation. But as he hung there on the cross that day and his muscles began to fail him and he could no longer control them and they began to deteriorate. It was not simply blood. Excuse me for being so graphic this morning. But it was not only blood that flowed out of his side and ran down his legs and pulled at the foot of the cross. But it was his own bodily fluids that ran down as his body began to fail him and mixed in that same pool of blood at the foot of the cross. My lovely Christ forfeited all his dignity and all honor and all glory because of my sin. Because of me. Because of what I would do 
And on top of that, the most horrible thing that has ever happened is God's hatred for sin since demand for satisfaction arrived at Calvary. The Bible says that by a sovereign act, He knew no sin, but He was made sin. Now listen, I have no Bible for this, okay? Allow me some leeway in my thought process. But I think that the reason that darkness may have fallen on Calvary that day because the Bible says it was dark, darkness fell in the middle of the day. May, maybe, maybe the reason for this was that as God looked down at what He was about to do to Jesus, He said that this is too horrible for man to witness. So I'm going to turn out the lights and nobody but heaven and hell are going to get to see Him be made sin. And when God's hatred for sin came and collided with a collision force to Calvary and Jesus felt the transformation taking place as He was leaving this life. And when He knew sin, when he, and when He knew no sin, uh, it, it, when it entered in His life, Himself, but himself was being transformed into sin. He cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But then, I'm glad it didn't. That's not the only force that was there. But then coming from the other side of the cross was God's love for my soul. And with a collision force that shook the very core of earth, God's hatred for sin, God's love for humanity collided at Calvary. The earth shook and the rocks quaked and Jesus cried out at that moment, it is finished. He cried with a loud voice and said, it is is done. Maybe he would have said, I paid their price. I took sin for humanity. Because at Calvary, the only two choices were he could save himself Or he could save me. No other choice. Either save himself or save me. And yet, knowing that, I can be so arrogant and I can feel the drawing touch of the Holy Ghost inviting me into his presence, inviting me in a worship service, inviting me to repent, inviting me. To recon reconciliation despite my sin. And despite the reproach that I've brought upon him. And I can say, oh, not today. I think I'll, 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 th I'll think about it some other time. And I'll get my life right some other time. Maybe some other day. Somehow I sense that in this hour, in this service this morning. What is present or what was present in that room 
At the Last Supper, when Jesus, having washed the feet of His disciples, came to Judas and He carefully and lovingly looked into His face and He said, what you have to do, do it quickly. The conflict is at hand. The collision is on track. At Calvary, God's hatred of sin came, barreling in, demanding satisfaction, and would not be pushed off any longer. But God's love for my soul and for your soul came from the other side of Calvary. And collided and fought with God's hatred for sin. He could have called 10,000 angels to save him. But he was not God because he could have. Rather, he was God because he didn't call 10,000 angels to save him. And when he cried, it is finished. The Bible says that the veil in the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And I know that this was in the spirit realm. But that holy place, that place where no, where only one living man in any generation ever had the privilege of seeing. That place where mercy, where the mercy of God dwelt. That place where the favor of God lived. And that place where no man could enter unless he had prepared himself. But that day, Jesus, my Jesus, bloody and beaten beyond recognition, his flesh in tatters, naked on the cross, walked up to that rent veil. He looked into the Holy of Holies and he stepped on through. But just before he stepped through, He took a look back, Brother Brandon, a 12-year-old boy in Frankfort, Indiana, who was a sinner, who was bringing a reproach on God. And he looked at me and he said, you want to go with me? I'll take you with me. Why don't you come with me? Back where the favor of God lives. Back where the favor of God lives. Back where I can make you the righteousness of God. We get so caught up in just being Pentecostal. Caught up in being whatever it is that we are trying to be. And we fail to recognize that every time we find ourselves in the presence of God and standing one more time in front of the rent veil, and Jesus is asking, do you want to come with me? Do you want to go with me? But Jesus, but God, I've got these wounds. And, but Jesus is saying, it's okay. Look at me. I'm unrecognizable. They beat me till my own mother couldn't even recognize me. Look at the wounds on my back. Look at the... Nails in my hands. Because Brother Brandon, the high priest, 
could not even enter into the Holy of Holies if he had a wound on his hand. He couldn't enter the Holy of Holies if he had any blemish on his body whatsoever. If he had a pimple on his face, he could not enter into the Holies of Holies. But yet God, Jesus, is standing at that veil. And He's looking at us with all of our blemishes, with all of our scars, with all of our wounds. And He's reaching out His hand this morning and said, Would you come with me? Would you come with me? I'll take you to that place. I'll, I'll bind your wounds. I'll make you righteous. I know you're unrighteous, but I'll make you righteous. I'll cover you with my blood that I shed on the cross of Calvary. God is asking someone here this morning, do you want to go in with me? Does anybody in this place want to go in with me this morning? Where you've been, you don't feel the mercy, you don't feel the favor. But in here, is where the mercy and the favor of God is still available. I don't know any else, any other way to do this tonight. If I preach to you and you've allowed sin to creep into your life, and you've brought a reproach on God, He's reaching for you this morning. He's asking you this morning, would you come? Would you go with me? I, I, know, I know what you've done, but I, I don't really care. I know what you've been, but I don't really care. I, I, I know what your thoughts are, but I don't really care. I just want someone to come with me because God so loved the world. These altars are open this morning. Would you come? Would you come? God's asking, would you come? Would you come? Would you come? Would you come this morning? God's reaching. God's drawing. God's asking. He'll never push himself on you. He's a gentleman, but he's asking, would you please come? Would you take my hand? Would you let me take you into that holy place? Would you let me take you into that place where I can make you righteous? Where I can make you worthy? Would you come this morning?
I ask the church to come. You may have you may have been serving God for 50, 40 years, but the fact of the matter is we're still not worthy. The fact of the matter is we still bring a reproach on God. We still sin. We're just sinners saved by grace. It's not because of us. It's not because of our goodness, but it's because of the grace and mercy and favor of God. I'm asking the church, would you come for just a few minutes, few moments this morning, and would you just... Would you just enter that place with him one more time? Would you, would you just take Jesus by the hand one more time? Would you allow him to lead you into that place? Would you allow him to take you into the Holy of Holies one more time this morning? He loved us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us.